0: So, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 12, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 12. About a week ago, as I was anticipating this Sunday and being 4th of July Sunday... Verse number 17 of our text came to mind. I want you to notice it if you would. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. Freedom that we have because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is the one that brings it to us. And Paul here is not talking about temporal, national freedom, physical freedom, or liberty. He's talking about eternal spiritual liberty, and freedom, the song of the soul set free from the bondage of sin, the soul set free from the deception that uh, there's some kind of obligation of good works that are necessary for me to get into heaven, that there's some kind of divine scale up in heaven, and if my good works outweigh my bad works, I'm telling you, that thought has caused people in this world more misery and uncertainty. If it's left up to you and me to get into heaven, we're in huge trouble. Because of the finished work of Christ, his perfect righteousness has made me accepted in the beloved. And uh, I want us to... Now, here's what happened. Well, I'll say a little bit more about this in a moment. Let me just read the text and we'll get into it. Verse number 12. Seeing then that we have such hope, the hope of Christ, the hope of the gospel, I'm the hope of the Spirit of God... Uh, Regenerating us, making us fit for the kingdom of heaven, this hope of eternal life, seeing then that we have such hope. This is not our modern concept of hope. This is a hope that is not only a desire, but the confident expectation that God's going to fulfill it. Let me just say this Heaven is a real place. Okay? And when I say I have the hope of heaven, I'm not saying I hope there's a heaven and I hope I get to go there someday. But on the authority of God's word and the confidence of God's spirit and the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf, I can say with Bible hope, there is a heaven and I'm going there. Okay? And I know that many of you here this morning can. Listen, if you're here and you can't say that with certainty, don't leave before you talk to us. Okay, because we can take God's word and show you how that hope can be yours. And so Paul says, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. We'll talk about that word plainness here in just a moment. But then Paul makes a contrast. We use great plainness of speech and not as Moses. Which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. We're going to read Exodus 34 in just a moment. But then notice verse number 14. But their minds, talking about the nation of Israel, their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, talking about the Old Testament in the Jewish setting, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now keep your hand there in 2 Corinthians 3 and go with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34 and verse number 29. Paul referenced a veil, he referenced Moses, he referenced the nation of Israel, he referenced Moses having a veil over his face. And so we're going to look at the historical background for this just briefly before we go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians, or pardon me, now Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Okay, he had been in the presence of the glory of God. His face had supernaturally absorbed some of that in his countenance. He's been given the law of God, the Ten Commandments, verse number 30. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come nigh him, to come near him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron, and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him. In other words, the people were running away from him. And Moses was like, no, no, come back. And Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses, it's the idea of when Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I would like to preach a message this morning after reading our text passage and the historical background that Paul references. I would like to preach a message entitled, There is Liberty, and the glorious liberty that we have as children of God, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, help me in the next few moments. You know, Lord, that because of our human limitations, there are some aspects of this passage which are not uh, as easy to understand as other portions of Scripture. And so I pray that you'd give me help uh, to explain what needs to be explained for the purpose this morning, for your purpose this morning. And uh, Lord, we're grateful above all and thank you for the fact that we can bask in the liberty that we have as children of God, a liberty that can never be taken away. It's an eternal spiritual liberty regardless of whatever status we may have on this earth, whatever country a believer may live in, whatever restrictions or lacks of temporal earthly liberty they may experience or not experience. I thank you that those who know Christ as Savior can have this eternal untouchable liberty that will carry us through all the way into eternity. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Freedom and liberty, both as words and concepts, are woven into our fabric as Americans. But let me say this. Freedom and liberty as words and as concepts as they're taught in the Bible are even more woven into our fabric as Christians I think about Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 1 when Paul was writing to the members of the churches in South Galatia who were uh, being influenced by false teaching that said that you had to obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. And it was discounting the finished work of Jesus Christ to pay all the sin debt and to give us perfect righteousness in the presence of God. Paul said in Galatians 5, 1 to these Galatian believers, Stand fast, therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. And be not entangled again with a yoke of liberty. And that takes my mind to John chapter 8 and verse 32 and uh, and 36. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then verse number 36, And if the Son, Jesus, shall make you free, ye shall be free Indeed, It's interesting, the addition of the word indeed implies that there are concepts or ideas of freedom that are not really full, true freedom. But the freedom that Christ gives to us is freedom indeed. And Paul, Paul in Romans chapter number 8, and verse number 21, talks about the time yet future to the believer when we will either through death or the rapture get shed of this old sin-cursed body. How many of you are looking forward to that? And we'll enter into what Paul calls the glorious liberty of the children of God. When I get a glorified body that is no longer subject to the temptations of sin and the curse of sin, it's called the glorious liberty of the children of God. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 13, Brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not your liberty as an occasion for the flesh, but by love serve one another. In other words, you don't have to obey the law in order to get into heaven. But don't use that as an excuse for living selfishly or any old way you want to. The fact that you've been set free from the bondage of sin, set free from the burden of the law, so to speak let that motivate you to by love serve one another doesn't give you the right to live for yourself. Live for Jesus and live for others. In Romans chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, Paul speaks of the blessing of being free from sin and now a servant of righteousness. Galatians chapter 1, verse number 4 tells us that one of the purposes of Christ's death on the cross was to deliver us from the bondage of this present evil world. Get it, Christian, we are resident aliens on this old planet. Our citizenship is in heaven. Songwriters, Christian songwriters, for generations have memorialized the truth of our liberty and of our freedom that we have, this eternal spiritual freedom that we have in Christ. I think about the song we sang just before the message, Once for All, And the theological truths of this song, free from the law, oh happy condition, Jesus has bled. In other words, he shed his blood and paid your sin debt and mine. And because of that, the songwriter said there is remission, that is forgiveness of sins. We are cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, but grace hath redeemed us once for all. Verse number two, we didn't sing it, but I'll quote it. Now we are free. There's no condemnation. (laughs) There's therefore now no condemnation, Paul said, Romans 8 and verse number one, to them which are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation of sin against me because of my sin and the penalty of death because I trusted Christ as Savior and his work was accepted by God. Get this. The shedding of his blood is resurrection from the dead. Because of that, I am free. There is no condemnation. Jesus provides a perfect salvation. Come unto me, oh, hear his sweet call. Come, and he saves once for all. What a tremendous truth, the theological depth of that. I like the testimonial-type songs that speak of the freedom that we have, too. you got theological songs that, man, they just go in deep with the theology of all of it. But I like the ones that are just first-person testimonial songs, For a long time I traveled down a long lonely road. I got it too high, so I'll just say it. I won't try singing it. My heart was so heavy in sin I sank low. Then I heard about Jesus. What a wonderful hour. I'm so glad that I found out that he could bring me out through his saving power. The second verse, like a bird out of prison that's taken its flight, like a blind man that God gave back his sight, Like a poor wretched beggar that's found fortune and fame. I'm so glad that I found out he could bring me out through his holy name. And the chorus said, thank God I'm free, free, free from this world of sin. I've been washed in the blood of Jesus. I've been born again. Hallelujah. I'm saved, saved, saved by his wonderful grace. I'm so glad that I found out he could bring me out and show me the way. Wow. The glory of that. Now, we see the simple statement of verse number 17. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty. And I've been thinking on that, and then as I got to studying the passage, I remembered, and commentators affirm this, that there are some complexities to this passage too. How many of you, as we were reading it at the beginning, you were like, "Hmm, what does that mean? I know your pain. I've been thinking about that this week. There is complexity in this passage. You read commentators and each will have, it seems, a different perspective on it. And yet I want us to focus this morning on the simple statement of verse number 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Why is that significant? It's significant because the Bible tells us that the moment you trusted Christ as Savior, if you're here today and you've trusted Christ as Savior, the Bible tells us that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, came and took up permanent residence inside of you. And for the rest of eternity, you will never have the Spirit of God separated from you. It's the down payment, the earnest of your salvation, Paul said. We are sealed unto the day of redemption, the Apostle Paul said, by the Spirit of God. And so as I think about some of the things that Paul takes up here... I'm kind of encouraged because there's some complexities here. And I'm not even going to try to take the time to get into all those this morning. We're going to focus on this concept of liberty. But I, I was thinking about what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. When he said about some of the writings of the Apostle Paul, he said, You know, Paul, some of the things that he wrote in them are things hard to be understood. The fishermen had a hard time understanding some of the things that Paul wrote. Now... Praise God for all of the things in the Bible that are very clear to understand. Amen? Okay. And by the way, those complexities in the Bible are not contradictions. They are limitations of our being finite, our being mortal. There's a day... And by the way, it it motivates us to keep studying, to keep digging in. But I was thinking also about... um, Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens, whichever name you like to call him, who was an unbeliever, somebody came to him one day and said, uh, Mr. Twain, w- w- does it bother you all of the contradictions in the Bible and the things you can't understand? He said, it's not the things in the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the things I do understand. Okay. And I want us to focus on something as it relates to liberty that I believe is very easily understood. I want us to consider from this passage of scripture this morning four blessings of liberty and to understand how they motivate us as believers to live boldly for the Lord Jesus Christ, to live confidently for the Lord Jesus Christ. Four blessings of liberty. Where the spirit of the Lord is, Paul says in verse number 17, there is liberty. The first blessing of liberty that I want us to draw out of this text is the blessing of boldness. Notice, if you would, verse number 12 again. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. I kind of had a humorous thought come to mind as I saw the word plainness of speech. You think when you read it, simplicity, clarity, easy to, understood, to be understood, and yet you read down in the passage and there are some things that are hard to be understood. It's almost like, uh, Paul, you're talking about great plainness of speech and you're saying some things that are not easy to understand. That's because the word plainness that Paul uses here is not a reference to simplicity, but it's a reference to that which is unhindered and therefore bold. We could say this, we use such boldness of speech. And then what Paul does is interesting, and he says, verse number 13, we use great plainness of speech or boldness of speech and not as Moses. So he's setting up a contradiction. Let me just say this. As we consider these blessings of liberty, and the first blessing is the blessing of boldness, I want you to understand that the contrast Paul is giving here is not that Moses was bashful. And Paul wasn't. How many of you with just a cursory knowledge of the life of Moses understand he was not bashful? So whatever contrast that Paul is setting up here between himself as a New Testament preacher of the gospel and Moses as the Old Testament lawgiver, whatever the contrast is, it's not saying that Moses was bashful. In fact, what Paul is saying as he gives this first blessing of liberty, the blessing of boldness, is that Moses, in contrast to the New Testament preacher of the gospel, Moses gave the Old Testament law, and Moses represented get this the Old Testament law and system, which in and of itself was incomplete. In and of itself, it did not have the power to save, it was waiting for fulfillment, and therefore, the law could not, Moses could not operate with the boldness that a post-Christ preacher can. Are you with me? Okay. So Moses isn't being bashful. He is simply limited in a sense, if you would. He is limited because the system of the law that he represents in the Old Testament is not complete. Because everything about the law was pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the one who, by his own testimony, when he came, would fulfill the law. The law, according to Paul in the book of Galatians, was a schoolmaster to bring the sinner to Christ. The law showed the sinner you can't save yourself. Only Jesus can save you. The law revealed our sinfulness And pointed us to Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter number 8. What the law could not do. And that it was weak through the flesh. God sent his son Jesus Christ. In the flesh. To fulfill the law. And its requirements. The author of the book of Hebrews. Said that the law could never make. The comers thereunto perfect. In that Old Testament sacrificial system. Under the requirements. As they brought bulls and goats. To be sacrificed. That system did not have the ability to make men perfect, if you would. But everything about the Old Testament system waited and anticipated the fulfillment of Jesus Christ's coming. Now, here's the deal. Moses was limited, not bashful, but he was limited because of the nature of the Old Testament law and its system. But once Christ came... And fulfilled the law when he fulfilled the perfect righteousness demanded by the law. When he paid the penalty for all of us lawbreakers through the shedding of his blood. When he raised victorious to life out of death, showing that he had conquered the penalty for sin once and for all. Once he did all of that, the law was fulfilled in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we don't have to hold back. Once Christ came, the perfection of the law was fulfilled. All the pieces, all the types, all the mysteries, all the shadows of the Old Testament system made sense when Jesus came. The payment for sin was made and Jesus Christ, get this, was our substitute to fulfill the requirements of the law. He was our substitute to pay the penalty of the law. So that now, as we've trusted Christ as Savior, He is my substitute so that when God sees me, He sees the righteousness of His Son perfectly fulfilling His law and I am accepted in His presence. Man. Therefore, it gives boldness, as Paul says here. We use great plainness of speech, boldness, because of the finished work of Christ, fulfilling the law, paying the penalty of the law. The minister and the individual believer can preach and live with plainness, with boldness. I am one of Christ's. and I don't have to be ashamed of that. I don't have to hold back. Members of the body of Christ can live, believers in Christ can live and witness with liberty because we've been set free to do so. We do not have anything to be ashamed of. I was reminded of the story of Ira Sankey. How many of you have heard the name Ira Sankey before? The great song leader of D.L. Moody, evangelist D.L. Moody. In 1870, Christmas Day, 1870... The story is told of Ira Sankey that he was on a, on a riverboat. I don't know if it was the Mississippi or the Delaware or whatever it was, but he was on a r- riverboat, and there was a, a sad atmosphere on the boat because of some delay. Everybody that was on the boat who had been hoping to get home for Christmas was not going to be able to get home for Christmas. And so everybody on the boat was sad because of the delay. And then someone found out that D.L. Moody's man, the, the the great singer, Ira Sankey, was on board. And so they sent to his quarters and asked him to come up on the main deck. And they asked Ira Sankey. They said, "Listen, to help lighten the mood, all of us are sad about missing Christmas uh, with family. Would you help and help lighten the mood by just singing us a song?" And in the shadows of the deck of that ship that night, rather than singing a Christmas song, Ira Sankey began to sing. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us much. We need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us, for our use thy folds prepare. Verse number two, when he got to the second verse, We are thine, do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our way. Keep thy flock from sin, defend us. Seek us when we go astray. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus. Hear, oh, hear us when we pray. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus. Hear, oh, hear us when we pray. As Sankey sang on the deck of that ship, a man stepped from the shadows who had a distinct southern accent. And he interrupted at the end of the song and he said, Mr. Sankey, in 1862, Would it be possible that you would have been doing guard duty on the Potomac River near Sharpsburg? Mr. Sankey stopped and he said, as a matter of fact, I was. And he said, and you sang that very song that you just sang. You sang it that night while you were on guard duty. Is that true? He said, as a matter of fact, it is. He said, I was a Confederate soldier. You were a Northern soldier on the other side of the river, I was a Confederate soldier, and he said, I had my rifle scoped in on you and I was about to shoot you. And then I heard you singing, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. And he said, It took me back to my mother's knees when she would sing that song to me. And he said, I dropped my rifle, I couldn't go through with the deed. And that man said I've been away from the Lord, but after hearing you sing tonight and recognizing that God spared me from taking your life so that you could be a ministry to others, he said I need to get right with God. And on the deck of that riverboat, Iris Sankey got to help that man come back to the Lord. But it was because of a man who wasn't afraid to sing on guard duty. Now, I'm sure you soldiers in here tonight said it's not or this morning say that's not a good idea. But apparently that night, Iris Iris sank because he knew Christ, was bold. The liberty to be bold. But I want you to notice another blessing of liberty is the blessing of believing. Verses 13 through 16. Let me just read them again. We're not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, talking about the law and the fact that it was temporary, it was going to be fulfilled and then put away, Verse number 14, but they're talking about the nation of Israel. Their minds were blinded. The nation of Israel's minds were blinded for until this day. 1,400 years after Moses in the first century A.D. when Paul was writing this, until that day remaineth the same veil untaken away that is in the minds and the hearts of the nation of Israel in Paul's day. That veil remains untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Which veil is done away in Christ but even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart, the heart of the nation of Israel. I want you uh, verse number sixteen, let me read this: Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. A second blessing of the liberty that we have that the Spirit of God provides that's been made available to us through the finished work of Christ is the blessing of believing in this passage of scripture, and please understand. I'm not going to go into great detail but in this passage of scripture the veil that Paul is referring to the veil that Moses put over his face is symbolic of the unbelief of the nation of Israel the process was this when Moses came down off the mountain he didn't realize his face shone and so the people were fearful so he put a veil over his face but then when he would get God's word he would come into the presence of the people he would take the veil off and give them God's word. It made an inseparable connection, get this, between the glory of God and the word of God. But then, when he would leave the presence of the people, he would put the veil back over his face, symbolizing, as Paul brings out here, symbolizing that even when people hear the word of God, so often they do not believe the word of God. And the nation of Israel is an illustration of that. Hearing the word of God, seeing the glory of God manifested even as it was reflected in Moses' face and yet saying, we don't believe that. Rejecting it and going their own way. And by the way, do we not see the same truth in the 21st century? And so the veil symbolizes unbelief. Now get this, unbelief is a choice. Belief is a choice. God has created us with the privilege to believe or the privilege not to believe. Notice verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. If our gospel be hid, Paul said, it is hid to them that are lost In whom the God of this world, referencing Satan, hath blinded the minds. Notice where this blinding comes from, this veil. The God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of them which, what? Believe not. Blindness comes from unbelief. But I want you to understand something. God has made us, and through the finished work of Christ, it is possible, get this, for everybody to believe the gospel and be saved. The work of Christ has made it possible for all to believe. As Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Another way of saying it is this. Worthy of everybody believing this. That Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said of whom I am chief. In other words, get this. Nobody is born or lives without the ability as a gift from the creator to believe the gospel and be saved. Any theological system that says a person is predestined to hell and there's nothing that they can do to change that is a false system. Okay. But the liberty... That Paul is talking about here not only is it a liberty to be bold once you've trusted Christ as Savior but it is also a liberty for anybody to believe the gospel notice what Paul says in verse number 16 in spite of this situation understood where there's this veil of unbelief on the nation of Israel's heart and they rejected Christ as their Messiah and really we could say the same of the whole world The world generally has rejected Christ as Savior. He came into His own, and His own received Him not. He came to this world. This world has rejected Christ. Yet notice verse number 16. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. I love that word nevertheless. It's as if Paul is saying, in spite of the fact that the whole nation of Israel rejected Christ, in spite of the fact that our world generally has rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. In spite of the fact that even 2,000 years after the cross, we still see prevailing unbelief in the world. When it shall turn to the Lord, the veil should be taken away. And we're going to talk about that it here in just a moment. The the trend, get this folks, the trend of the nation of Israel at that time, the trend of the world is not to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I love what Paul says in Romans chapter number 3, get this, get this. For if some did not believe, does this make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, Paul said. doesn't matter if the majority of people don't believe, there's still opportunity for an individual to believe and be saved. If they believe the gospel, if they turn to the Lord. And that leads us to the next statement. And I love this. It really shows the hope of the heart of God. Nevertheless, what's the next word? Verse 16. When. When it shall turn to the Lord. That that simple word when is the idea that that's what God wants. Nevertheless, when God is anticipating, if I can say it this way, God is anticipating people to believe the gospel anybody who wants to the pronoun it that is used here is in the context referring to the nation of israel when the nation of israel and it's looking forward to that time in the future when romans 11 prophesies that all israel is going to recognize christ as messiah and be saved at the end of the tribulation period but there's also included in this pronoun it two small really big letters it. It's, it is a, a very all-encompassing pronoun. Can I say it this way? When it shall turn to the Lord can very much be understood this way. Whoever, whatever, whenever, however they turn to the Lord, the veil of unbelief is removed and that person is saved. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I was thinking about Last night at prayer meeting, Brother Jeremy mentioned their little five-year-old grandson, Eric, getting saved. And uh, his parents, uh, Taylor and um, Jacob, were rightly cautious. It's very easy for a little one growing up in a Christian home at four or five years old to go through the motions of praying a prayer. And parents, I think it's right for us to be cautious and let the Spirit of God do His work and make sure there's understanding. Praying a prayer doesn't save you. Believing on Jesus Christ saves you. Okay. And how easy it is to get a little child to go through. And so Jacob and Taylor had been rightly holding off, making sure there was understanding. And finally this past week, little Eric was sitting in the kitchen floor, and he says, Mama, why can't I get saved? He was saying so in reference to the fact that they had been holding him off. And so she sat down, made sure he understand, went through the gospel with him, and he trusted Christ save Savior. I, how available is the gospel? How, how much of a blessing is it, this blessing of believing, is part of the liberty that we have, that a child can be saved? And we can go to the opposite extreme and say, somebody who's made a mess of their life, who thinks they're too far gone, you are not too far gone for Jesus. I don't care what you're, go ahead, pile up the list. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Jesus' blood is enough to wash it away, and His grace where sin abounded, His grace did much more abound. And Paul says, when it, in spite of this veil of unbelief, when it, the nation or the individual, will turn to Christ, I think about stories we get from our missionary, David Eden's, of the gospel in, in written form or audio form getting brought by one of those African evangelists into a Muslim village in the desert of Africa. No American, European, white missionary ever been there before. And yet the seed of the gospel is sown through the scriptures and in some cases, most of the village is illiterate. But they hear the gospel translated into their own language, and the whole village, several hundred people, will sit around. And as a village, many times, they'll trust Christ as Savior. And the Muslim Imam becomes the pastor of the church. The blessing of believing. And there's a day coming when the entire nation of Israel will believe. Oh, man. The blessing of beholding. You want another wonderful blessing of the liberty that you have? In the Old Testament, and I'm just going to summarize. I've got I to gotta start making a, a landing here. The blessing of beholding. In the Old Testament system, get this, folks. The high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies, but he didn't have the privilege that Moses did. Exodus thirty three eleven and Deuteronomy 34, 10, and I'm paraphrasing them, but tells us that there was not a prophet in Israel like Moses, a man who knew God face to face and spoke with God as a man speaks to his friend. But Moses was the only one. It was an exclusive privilege that only Moses had. But get this. Because of the work of Christ in the New Testament era in which we're living, okay? Because the barrier's been broken down, because the Spirit of God indwells the New Testament saint. I've got, and I'm not saying this presumptuously or arrogantly, but folks, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, you have God living inside of you. And because of that, a presence, which in the Old Testament, the presence of God, caused even the Israelites to want to get away. The Spirit of God, according to Romans chapter number 8. Look at Romans 8. Look at Romans 8. Just a few pages back to the left. There's a microwave at the house. Supper can be warmed up or lunch can. Romans chapter number 8, verse number 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Of a father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. The Spirit of God on the inside of us stirs us to say, He's not just God, He's Daddy. And get this a privilege that was only exclusive to Moses in the Old Testament is available to every believer in the New Testament.
1: Through the word of God and the
0: spirit of God, I have access to the presence of God at all times. i got to give you this illustration. Her name was Frances Green. She was an 83-year-old widow from California on Social Security. She had been a faithful contributor to Ronald Reagan's campaigns and presidency, albeit $1 at a time on her limited income. She was by no means a wealthy woman, but Mrs. Green received an invitation in 1988, from the Republican National Committee to a reception at the White House over the Fourth of July weekend in 1988. Determined to meet President Reagan, she boarded the Southwest Chief in Los Angeles and settled in for her long three-day train trip to Washington, D.C. On the Fourth of July, Mrs. Green arrived at the White House gate on Pennsylvania Avenue. She approached the Secret Service officer and showed him her invitation. I'm sorry, he said, but I can't let you in. Your name isn't on the guest list, and you have to be vetted for security reasons, the officer said politely. Can you imagine frisking an 83-year-old grandmother? Mrs. Green had not read the fine print on her invitation that called for an RSVP and a sizable mandatory contribution. She was heartbroken. The kind-hearted Secret Service officer called one of the presidential aides he knew and told them Mrs. Green's story. The aide told President Reagan about Mrs. Green, and the president also was touched by her story. The next day, though she couldn't come to the event on the 4th, they set it up for her to come back the next day for a personal tour of the White House. Mrs. Green returned to the White House at the appointed hour for her special tour. As they were ending the tour, the aide and Mrs. Green were standing outside the Oval Office. The door was cracked, and the aide brought Mrs. Green to the door to peek through to get a glimpse of President Reagan sitting at his desk. As I understand from a book I read that recorded this or recounted this story, Ed Meese had just resigned. There were a couple of things of national interest and international interest that had just taken place. Reagan was a busy man this day. As they peeped through the door, Ronald Reagan saw Mrs. Green and motioned for her to come in, saying, Francis, those crazy computers, they fouled it up again. If I'd known you were coming, I'd have come out there to get you myself. He invited her into the Oval Office, and President Reagan and Mrs. Green sat together on the Oval Office couch talking about California and Mrs. Green's life. Some would have considered the time spent with Mrs. Green in the Oval Office a waste of President Reagan's time, but it wasn't. It was two good, decent people caring for each other. One just happened to be the President of the United States of America. You know, as I thought about that story, I thought about a woman who got on a train in Los Angeles three days to come to Washington, D.C. for the rare opportunity to see a President. I want you to understand something. As a child of God, part of the liberty that you have by the indwelling Spirit of God, God's presence living inside of you, You don't have to travel three days by train to get to God. You don't have to go through a pastor or a priest or anybody else to get to God. You have immediate access to the presence of God. It is part of the privilege of your liberty as a child of God. And fourthly, there's the blessing of the liberty, the blessing of being changed. Verse number 18. There's no veil in the way. The veil of unbelief and sin has been removed. We have an open face, Paul says in verse number 18. But we all, in contrast to just Jews, Jew and Gentile both, but we all contrast between an individual believer and a preacher. We all, with open face, and it speaks of a permanently open face, the veil removed, beholding as in a glass, a mirror, the glory of the Lord, talking about the Bible. Are being changed, are changed into the same image. That is the image of Christ from glory to glory, from one attribute to the next, even as by who? The Spirit of the Lord. Another blessing of our liberty is the liberty of being changed. And by the way, the Spirit of the Lord has the power to do the change. That is what is meant in the first part of verse number 17. Now, the Lord is that Spirit. It's the same as saying, the Spirit is Jehovah, the Spirit is God. He's not some force. He's he's not just a, a subpar member of the Trinity. He is as much God as the Father is and as the Son is. And therefore, he has the power to accomplish transformation in our lives to make us look like Jesus so that any believer, get this, any believer, this is your liberty, child of God. Any believer who has the Spirit of God living inside of them and comes to the Word of God with a humble and a submissive heart, though you may not understand everything, get this, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and transforms you into the image of the Son of God. That's liberty. There's nothing to restrict His transforming power at work in our lives, whatever your past condition may be. The Spirit of God, let me conclude with this. The Spirit of God points us to Christ. He weds us to Christ. He marries us to Christ. He directs our attention to Christ. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans that the Spirit of God is the agent who sheds abroad, just pours out everywhere in our heart the awareness of how much God loves us. Do you know what he does? The Spirit of God points us to Christ on a cross and says, Hey, you want to know how much God loves you? Look at the cross. You ever question God's love? Look at the cross. The Spirit of God does that. I was thinking about the hostas that grace has planted outside the house, and all of them, most of them have flowered. Do you know what I notice about those stems with those blossoms just waiting to burst open? Is they all are pointing to the evening sun. I think about sunflowers that follow the sun in its orbit over the sky. They draw their nourishment from that. And the Spirit of God says, hey, to the believer, listen, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. That's where the nourishment is. That's where the change comes. It's our liberty. Basking in the love of Jesus. The story is told of a young island chieftain chieftain in the South Pacific who betrothed to himself a girl in his village that everybody was shocked when he did. They thought, that's a plain girl. He paid double or triple the dowry that was required for an average girl. And people were just shocked. The young chieftain married this girl. They went away on their honeymoon. And when they returned several weeks later, people were overwhelmed by the transformation, the glow on this girl's face. And do you know what the cause of it was? The love of her groom. And let me tell you what will transform you and me more than anything else, is the awareness of the love of Jesus Christ and the liberty that we have in our relationship with him. And it's the spirit of God that motivates that. It's the spirit of God that leads us into that. And so these blessings of liberty, the blessing of boldness or confidence in Christ, the blessing of believing, the blessing of beholding, being in his presence, the blessing of our liberty and being changed. We've been given this glorious liberty. Let's live in the full blessing of it, the full reality of it, and share it. And let me say about this liberty as opposed to earthly liberty, there is no threat to your eternal liberty. Nothing can ever take it away.